Romans 9 and 10. Two quick things that I forgot to mention. A church camp. Church camp is coming up and coming up here very, very quickly. Teens are taking off June 15th through the 19th. Uh, Jonathan and I were emailing, and we're pushing 40 people going to church camp, which means uh, we need another driver. We uh, outgrew the church bus, and we're trying to get something else. So we need another driver and another vehicle. So if that's something that you can uh, help out with, uh, talk to Jonathan. Jonathan is not here today. They're actually singing, uh, I believe, at a different church there. So if you have an idea for that, you can help out. See me, I guess, and we'll try to point the right direction there. And also, parents and kids, if you're going to church camp, if you haven't got one of the forms back there yet to fill out, please grab one of those, fill those out, so that way we can get everything going on church camp. Uh, one other ministry idea that we wanted to run by, and this is for uh, guys in the maybe in the Deschler area here. We've been kind of praying about this for a while, and we thought about maybe starting up a, a Saturday morning men's Bible study in the Deschler area. You know, we do one out here at church on a Saturday morning, and I tell you, I, I think that's one of the greatest times to get together as men, look each other in the eye, and say, hey, could you pray for me this way? I'm struggling with this. So Rich and I have been talking about that, and I thought about maybe going into Deschler and starting up a study there Saturday morning. So men in the Deschler area, if you're interested in that, uh, see me, let me know. And uh, we can find a location, and then if Lord's not in it, we'll just move on and see what else he's got in store for us. So keep that in prayer. All righty, Romans 9. Romans 9. We're going to do uh, finish up Romans chapter 9. We're going to do a good chunk of Romans chapter 10 here. And uh, hey, I think we should pray real quick before we get going. Lord, just let your spirit lead and guide. Just let your spirit lead and guide in all ways. And let us be open to what you have to say today and help us to prepare our hearts for communion today. To hear what you want us to do to be the people you've called us to be. In your name, amen. I had two conversations this week with people that I've known for many years. And it kind of surprised me with some of the conversations because the subject got to salvation. And the subject came to knowing that we're saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. There's no question about that. But yet, still in the back of our minds, this idea of, I can earn favor with God. And you've heard me say this many times before. At this moment, right here, right now, God cannot love you more than what he loves you at this moment right now. There's, there's nothing you can do to earn more love from the Lord. But yet, in the back of our mind as believers, we still have this in our mind, this idea of, if I pray more, if I read more, it's not that God owes me, but maybe that can move a little more. That can nudge a little bit more. I got a really big thing going on. So if I just really pray really hard tonight, and I normally would pray for five minutes, I'm going to pray for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Lord, look at my heart. God will have to say yes. Or, you know, I normally read a few verses. I'm going to read a couple chapters, and the Lord is going to see this and say, Wow, I really want to reward them for what they did. The danger of that logic is this. If you are rewarded for what you do, then you should also be punished for what you don't do. So that means the days that you don't read, you don't pray, God should look from you in heaven and say, sorry, nothing today. Aren't you glad that's not how the system works? Now, we know this. But yeah, we still struggle with this. For me, I got saved in 93, and it took me about 10 years to fully get this. To fully get this, this concept, this idea that I cannot earn favor or love by reading more, praying more, witnessing more, studying more. It almost becomes this legalistic have to when really it's 
I want to. I choose to. I can remember it was Easter weekend in 1994. I hadn't, no, 1995. I'd been saved for just a, oh, about a year, year and a half. We were meeting at the library there um, at the high school. And I remember Jim was doing communion. And as he was getting ready to do communion here on this Easter weekend, uh, it was not a good weekend for me. Made a lot of stupid choices, did a lot of stupid things, just a lot of flesh. So I got to church Easter Sunday, and we're getting ready to do communion. And Jim's teaching on communion, and he's talking about, you know, let a man examine himself and do not eat of the bread in an unworthy manner and all this other type of stuff. And, you know, that's why we always have this time of confession before we do communion is to prepare our heart for what the Lord has in store. And so we get ready to partake of communion, and um, I left. I didn't take communion because... Man, I was in such an awful spot spiritually, so I, I just left. Rather than dealing with the sin, it was easier just to run and hide. So I left. I didn't partake of communion. And the rest of that day went great. Didn't have school the next day. I was still in school that day. I think we had Monday off, whatever they call that, Easter Monday. That day went great. So I get to school on Tuesday, and I go into Jim's off, uh, classroom. And, and I say to him, I said, what is going on? I said, I I was awful Friday. I was awful Saturday. Sunday, I I couldn't even take communion. I was so hard-hearted. I didn't even confess. I just didn't want to deal with it. And then Sunday afternoon goes great. Monday afternoon goes great. Here it is Tuesday, and this is going good. What is going on? And I remember Jim looking at me, and I never forgot this. He goes, God does not bless you on what you do. He just blesses you because he loves you. And that just really hit me. Now, be careful with that logic. Well, God's just going to bless me because he loves me. Why do anything? Because what I've heard James say today is, I don't have to read. I don't have to pray. I don't have to serve. In fact, I'm going to go tell Tony right now, take my name off the schedule. (laughs) No, that's not what I'm saying. There's nothing you can do to earn more love, more favor in God. He just loves you. Now, the segue into Romans 9 and 10 with this is this. The Jews didn't get that. The Jews thought they would have favor with God. The technical term is become righteous. Righteousness means to be made right. The Jews thought they would be made right because they were Jews. They had the law. They had works. They had the heritage. They were sons of Abraham. They had the circumcision. The Gentiles had nothing. But yet the Gentiles got righteousness because they believed in faith. And that's the point of Romans 9 and 10. Now, guys, we we know this this morning. We know that it's only Jesus. We know that's the only way we can be saved. But yet, still in the back of our minds, we have to let go of this mindset that if I do this, God's going to bless me with this. He owes me. God owes no one. He's a debtor to no man. God blesses you and loves you just because he loves you. And what a beautiful thing that is. With that being said, Romans 9... Verse 24, even us whom he called. Now stop right there, called. The word called is used nine times in the next couple chapters here. You have been called by God. God wants you. God desires you. He's called you. Did you ever think about that? So often we deal in this world where we feel nobody loves me, nobody likes me, nobody understands me. God calls you, though. He wants you. Going back to stories of being young in the faith, I remember doing a Bible study with a guy and gal. And I had been saved for all of, uh, I think, nine months. 
They had been saved for all of three months. So I was the seasoned saint. And we're doing this study together. I remember distinctly, we were sitting on their couch going through 1 John. And the subject of God choosing us, God calling us came up. And I remember she just broke down in tears. And I was like, what's going on? And she goes, he chose me. He called me. He wanted me. Now, me being the seasoned saint, well, of course he did, because theologically speaking, this is what the Lord does. Nine months or whatever it was, six months into my walk with the Lord, I had already lost that excitement of God called me. God chose me. What had happened was God had called me and chose me because of what I bring to the table. That's what I've already convinced myself of. I knew I was going to be able to teach. I knew I was going to be able to speak. I knew I could make people laugh. And so, therefore, that's why God chose me. No, God chose me just because he loved me. There was absolutely nothing redeeming in me. Please remember this. And this is said in love, and I hope it actually encourages you. There is nothing in you that God saw from heaven says, I want him because of that. I want her because of that. Once again, can you imagine if there was something in you where God says, I want you because of what you bring to the table. What happens when I can no longer do that? God's going to now kick me out of heaven? No, God opened the gates of heaven to me through what Christ did on the cross just because he loves me. Just because he called me. Just because he chose me. Just because he wanted me. How freeing is that? So if we know this from the beginning, why do we spend the rest of our Christian life trying to earn more love and favor where from the beginning there was nothing we could ever do? Let's carry on in that mindset. I'm just called and chosen and just loved and it's just the grace of God and there's nothing I could do to earn his favor. The Jews, once again, they didn't take that thought, but the Gentiles did. Remember real quick, Gentiles or anybody that's not Jewish. Jewish, descendant of Abraham. Anybody not? Gentile. So let's talk about this. What about these Gentiles? Verse 24, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. The Gentiles have been called to salvation. And this is Old Testament, book of Hosea. God says, I still want to move in these people. Now you have to remember from a biblical standpoint how the Jews looked at the Gentiles. Man, the, the Gentiles were disgusting and dirty and unclean. And how could God choose them? But he did. Guess what, folks? We're disgusting and dirty and unclean. And God chose us. God chose us. Go to Matthew, please. Matthew 15. I think so often since the church, when I say the church, I mean the church throughout the world, is, is obviously the vast majority are Gentiles. We start thinking, it's all about us. No, it's all about the Jews. They're God's chosen people. We're the afterthought. And we're going to get to that in the next couple of weeks. God still loves us. God still loves us, but yet he came for the Jews. Matthew 15 shows us this. Verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. A woman of Canaan. She's already got two knocks against her. She's from Canaan. She's a Gentile and she's a woman. Now, from a New Testament perspective, not from God's perspective, but from a New Testament perspective, that would be a problem. 
No Jewish man would want to talk to a Gentile. No Jewish man would want to talk to a woman. So here she comes. Have mercy on me. Verse 23. But he answered her, not a word. And his disciples came and urged her and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. She's annoying us. Verse 24. He answered and said, I have not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Hey, guys, that's my calling. Sorry, Gentile Canaanite woman. You're not my calling. I came only for the Jews. Verse 25, then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me is probably really what we should call the sinner's prayer. Because that's all it is, is Lord, help me. We have convinced ourselves this idea of an altar call sinner's prayer is everybody close your eyes, bow your head, repeat after me and raise your hand. Now, if that's what you feel called to do, that's what you feel called to do. I'm, I'm not a real fan of that. You know, if you look at the altar calls of Jesus in the Bible, Jesus' altar call was this. Hey, do you want to follow me? Follow me. If you don't want to follow me, then don't. It's very straightforward. This gal, Lord, help me. Well, that's not eloquent. That's not long. But that's the simplicity of Jesus, people. Look at verse 25. Worship and Lord, help me. Jesus can't say no to that. Worship him. And Lord, help me. He answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, that phrase, little dogs, is really an awful translation. In the original Greek, it's actually puppies. That's what it's saying. Now, it doesn't really flow real well if we would look at it from a, um, oh, like if you guys got King James out there, it probably says something like, It, it is not goodeth to taketh from the childreneth, the breadeth, and throw it to the puppyeths. I mean, that just wouldn't really flow. So, little dog, it really means puppies. How can you say no to a puppy? I mean, some of you have dogs in your house right now, and you're like, what were we thinking? Well, they were a puppy, they were cute. And then they become 80 pounds, and they shed. But that idea of puppies. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs, the puppies, eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. What she's saying is, I just want a crumb. I just want a crumb from Jesus. Verse 28. And Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. That word woman there is actually not a derogatory term in the original language. It's a term of respect. So here's this Canaanite, dirty, heathen woman. And Jesus ends up saying, great is your faith. Because even back during the time of Christ... The gospel was still there for the Gentiles. The focus was the Jews, but it was still there for the Gentiles. And you see the heart of God. Lord, help me. When you just go to the Lord and worship, and just, Lord, help me. He looks at you as this little puppy. He just looks at you as this little puppy and just loves you. What a beautiful picture that is. And it it goes even deeper. In Acts 10, when God opens the door of salvation to the Gentiles completely, it's through Cornelius and Peter. And you can read that story in Acts 10. But you see this idea that God wants, he wants all have been called to salvation. The Gentiles have responded to this. What about the Jews? Verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, the Jews. 
Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So yes, the Jews are still saved too. There's just a small remnant. Look at verse 27. Though the number of children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a large number, the remnant will be saved. There's just a small group of Jews that are saved. And what has happened here is the Lord of Sabbath, depending on your translation, verse 29, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, he still has a seed. He still has a group of Jews. And there is. There's still Jews getting saved today. Now, once again, does not compare to the Gentiles being saved. Because there's this symbolic picture back in the book of Acts that the Jews have rejected Jesus. They will come. They will come back to Christ. That's the book of Revelation. When the Jews finally see Christ as the Messiah, oh my goodness, that's when the floodgates open. As you've heard me say the last couple weeks, that's when the party really starts. What a blessing that will be. But at this time right now, the church is mostly made up of Gentiles. Why? Verse 30, what shall we say then? Why? The Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. What happened? How did the Jews reject this, but the Gentiles got it. It's very simple. The Jews pursued righteousness. Remember, righteousness means just to be made right. So they were going to be made right in God. How? Through the law, through the circumcision, through the works, through their heritage, where the Gentiles came and said, we'll take this righteousness and we can't bring anything to the table. We're we're not a child of Abraham. We don't have the circumcision. The law wasn't given to us. We don't have this heritage. We have nothing but faith. And God says, that's all I want. And so that's what happened. This was a stumbling block to the Jews. Verse 32, they stumbled on this. This tripped them up. This makes no sense because for years they convinced themselves they were it because of what they did. Then all of a sudden these Gentiles are coming in and they're like, well, wait a second. You're not a Jew. You didn't get the law. You're not circumcised. You have no heritage. How are you part of this? Faith. Faith. We can bring absolutely nothing to the table to make God say, I want you. Nothing. It still sticks in our head, though. I have run into believers who I firmly believe love Jesus, and I hear their wording. I remember one time talking to this one guy, and he's a real heart for the Lord. But I remember him telling me one time, just praying about where the Lord needs me. Wait a second. I don't think God up in heaven is saying, man, I got a hole down there. I don't know what to do. Lord doesn't need us. And once again, he did not put us into ministry. He did not put you into service. He has not done anything with you because you're eloquent or because you're smart or because you can handle it. No, the Bible actually says God likes to take the most low and despised people he can and then build them up through the Spirit to say, there is no way that guy could have done that. Only through the Holy Spirit. Please remember this phrase. Everybody is replaceable. Because it's the Holy Spirit that moves in them, not the person. For some reason, we have reached a point in the American society today where we start thinking it has to be this certain individual. 
It's the Holy Spirit. It's not a man. It's not a gal. It's not a ministry. It's not a church. It's the Holy Spirit moving and working in people's lives. That's what does it. Now, verse 32, that makes people stumble. That trips them up. You've been hearing me teach about this for about the last year and a half. This concept of church is broken. The way we look at church. That there's this one person that gets up and they represent the Lord. And this one person takes care of most of the stuff and directs things. No. No. That's not the way it is. And that trips people up because our focus gets on one person. Well, the Jews were tripped up because they thought they were in because of what they did. Jesus loved to break the system. Remember in John 8, where the woman was caught in adultery and she comes? The Jewish response? Let's follow the rules. This woman needs stoned. Let's take her out now. What did Jesus tell the woman? Go and sin no more. That's just Christ. The, The Jews couldn't understand that. Jesus is showing grace and mercy. That made them stumble. Jesus is out touching lepers. He's casting out demons. He's talking to Gentiles. That just made the Jews stumble. This is not the way it's supposed to be. What is our picture of Christianity today? Well, our picture of Christianity is this. We dress up. We go to church on Sundays. And we do our thing on Sunday. And maybe we do something on Wednesday. And then we come back again on Sunday. Well, what about Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday? See, this concept of what we have really needs to be changed because we have caught ourselves in this own little system as well, too. What happens if God wants to do something that's completely crazy? Is that going to make you stumble? Have you ever thought about that? What happens if the Lord wants to do something that is so out there, and when you hear that, you can't accept that because you're just like the Jews of 2,000 years ago. Well, this is the way it has to be. Maybe he's got something he wants to do. What does he want to do? Let's look at this. Verse 1 of chapter 10. My brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Paul says this stumbling issue has called the Jews to trip them up. They're still trying. They have a zeal, verse 2, but not according to knowledge. They have an enthusiasm, but it's not according to the right knowledge. I like how the New Living Translation says this. Just reading here how the New Living Translations. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. Have you ever met somebody who's enthusiastic? But they still can't do it. See, the Jews were enthusiastic, but they weren't doing it right. I can remember when we were bringing home groceries years ago, and we would come and set the groceries in right in the house, and then what happened is we got this little chain. I'd bring the groceries in, set them inside the door. The kids would start taking the groceries to Dawn. Dawn would start putting them away. It's like this little train of work here. I remember it was a few years ago, so Kenan, our third child, was much, much younger, and he wanted to help. So I set the milk down, and I remember coming back, and I see Kenan carrying two gallons of milk, 16 pounds of milk. Oh, thanks, buddy. I appreciate that, but, but, but don't. I'm just envisioning milk spilling, you know, everywhere. So I come back in the next time, and he realized he couldn't carry two gallons. He has one gallon on the floor dragging it, dragging it. He had zeal. 
He had enthusiasm, but he couldn't do it. Do you realize you can be enthusiastically wrong and you can be zealously wrong? There's a lot of people out there that have an enthusiasm, that have a zeal for their picture of God, and they're enthusiastically and zealously wrong because they're not matching up their zeal with knowledge, according to verse 2. Think about that. I, I want us to be excited. I want us to be passionate for the Lord. But you've got to be careful what you're zealous about. See, that phrase, zealous, enthusiastic for God, it's also used in different ways in the Bible. The New Testament says you can also be zealous for sin. Have you ever met anybody enthusiastically sinful? I've met people like that. You also, the Bible says, can be zealously angry, enthusiastic for anger. Have you ever met people that just like to get angry? They're enthusiastically angry. God wants us to be zealous and enthusiastic for the things of the Lord, but according to knowledge. The Jews were zealous for God. They were willing to kill Jesus because they thought it was the right thing to do. They were going to kill Peter. They were going to kill Paul. But they were enthusiastically wrong. I run into people who have their version of God, and they're enthusiastically wrong. But they sure think they're right. The zeal has to be with knowledge. Because if you're not doing it according to God's way, look at verse 3. You're ignorant of God's righteousness. See, here's the problem. Look at verse 3 one more time. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. I like how the New King James trains us. They're seeking their own righteousness and not submitting to God's righteousness. We do that. We seek our own righteousness and we don't submit to God's plan. And then we wonder why it doesn't work. Instead of seeking God's righteousness and plan, remember righteousness means to be made right, we seek our own. We talked about the last couple weeks, about how often we seek our own. I am just a piece of clay telling God what to do. I don't like the way my life is going. Who are you to even decide that? Well, I don't like what's happening in my life. I think God's messing up. No, Romans 8 says that he's good and he does good. Do you believe that? Are you seeking your own? Are you willing to submit to God's plan no matter what it is? Seriously, are you willing to submit to what the Lord calls you to do no matter how crazy it is? What would happen if the Lord would come to you your next time in quiet times with him and he says, Hey, I'm calling you to do this. Change your job. I'm calling you to sell your house. I'm calling you to move. I'm calling you to take up that ministry. I'm calling you to do this. Would you be willing to submit yourself to God's plan no matter what it is? I'm just going to be honest with you. We wouldn't, would we? Do we even ask him? Our concept of Christianity in America today is not hitting our knees and saying, Lord, whatever you want to do in my life, I want to do. Lord, whatever you have in store for me, I want to do, no matter how crazy it is. No, our concept of life today is we hopefully find that job that we can put our 30 years in and then just be done. What happens if the Lord says 20 years into it, I want you to do something different? Man, I'm so close to retirement. If I just work a few more years, I'll be fully vested. Or this house, this is the house we've always wanted. Why would, why would we move? 
See, our concept of serving God is within our own little parameters of what we want. And we are so stubborn that we're not willing to get out of that. And I'm just asking you right now, verse 3, not to kick you, not to pick on you, not to make you feel weird or make you squirm. Are you willing to submit to the righteousness of God? And whatever he asks you to do, are you willing to do it? No matter how crazy that sounds. Because if you're not, what you're saying is, I'm going to seek my own. We have to be willing and open to do whatever the Lord has called us at any time to say, Lord, it's for you. No matter how strange this sounds. Guys, it's not about us. It's not about Harvest Fellowship. It's about Jesus. And see, go to verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 4 is saying the answer is simply just Christ. I mean, I mean do, we, do we believe that? Do we believe really that the answer is that simple? It's just Christ. Nothing else. He, he's the end of the law for righteousness, everyone who believes. It's all about Jesus. Do we believe that? Because if we believe that, that changes everything we do. If we believe it's just Christ, all of a sudden hurting marriages, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. All of a sudden, wives, respect and honor your husbands. All of a sudden, every day, you go through the lens of Christ. Is that person saved? If not, I hope I get a chance to talk to them today. What would happen if we'd get up in the morning and just say, if it's truly all about Christ, verse 4, I just, Lord, send one person into my life today, just one person that I can tell about you. When's the last time we did that? When's the last time we got up in the morning and just said, Lord, one person today, please? No, most of the time we get up in the morning and say, Lord, just get me through the day. What would happen if we would quit looking at life through us and through Christ? And it's not about our calendar, about how busy it is. Because we let our calendar dictate our life. The kids have this event, we have this off, we, we, we mark vacations and we mark time away and all that stuff is important and good. I'm not opposed to that. But we allow a calendar to determine God's will for our life. The Lord comes to you and says, I want to move in your life. And you say, let me check the calendar. What would happen if everything went through the lens of Christ? No matter how crazy it seemed. And we truly stopped and said, Lord, it's all about you. Are you willing to do that? Because it comes down to verse 3. I need to submit to that. If I try to do it on my own, verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. Moses basically says this, if you want to go the route of works in the law, you want to do it yourself, that's fine, but then you've got to do everything. You've got to do everything. you basically got to say, Jesus, can you move over on the cross so I can take care of my own sins? See, the problem is we throw a little bit of, oh, it's all about Jesus, but yet yeah, look at all the good works I'm doing, Lord. And we got this little combination Christianity. No, verse 5 makes it clear. If you want to low the route of your works earn favor with God, then you got to do it all. You got to be perfect. You got to get it all done. You don't want to go that route. Just to show the difference between grace and law. I heard a pastor teach on this recently. It really hit me. I never put it together. In Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, the church is created. Does anybody remember roughly how many believers got saved? About 3,000. Exodus, 
33, the day the law came down, you know what happens? About 3,000 Jews died because they did not respect the holiness of God on the mountain. Think about that. Law comes, 3,000 die. Church comes, 3,000 get saved. See, that's the difference between law and works right there. If you want to go the route of law and you want to play this little game of I'm going to earn favor with God, you got to do it all. God says just simply love me. Just simply love me. Verse 6, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith of which we preach. See, if you go the route of I want to do something, verse 6, you're going to go up to heaven and bring Jesus down. Verse 7, you're going to descend into the abyss and bring Christ up. You can't do that. Sit back and enjoy grace and mercy. It's right there, verse 8. The word is near you. It's right there. How often do we feel like God is playing hide-and-go-seek with us and we got to go find him? He's right there. He is near you. Well, he doesn't feel near me. I'm just going to be straightforward with you. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he draws near to you. Anytime someone comes up to me and they start talking about feeling lonely or they start feeling empty, I feel like, uh, you know, the Lord's not there. The question I always ask them, how are you doing spiritually? Are you with the Lord? Are you close to him? Well, no. Well, then why do you think he's going to be near to you? He is near to those that call upon him. And yet we have established this Christianity where if I show up Sunday and I stayed till 1130... I'm good until maybe next Sunday. That's awful. That's not being near to the Lord. That's not living a life for Him. It's just walking in weakness. And the longer I do this, the more I realize, man, verse 8, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That simplicity of just preaching God's truth. Just preaching it, just presenting God's truth. I've been reading a lot, just, just trying to figure out, Lord, what do you want us to do as a church? You know, we got some vision ideas that we feel the Lord may be leading on, and it, it's, it's kind of crazy, but yet we want to do this stuff because we feel the Lord has led us to do it. And I read this article, and it was talking about um, churches, and it's talking about starting up churches, etc. And it talks about how often when, when people try to start up a movement of God, you know, and it had this little picture, and it was just kind of a funny little picture. And it was talking about the list that people feel like they need to do to get a church going. And one of them was uh, have cool shirts printed up with your church name on it. Another one was make sure you have good coffee. And then what happened is, in the little cartoon, it had red X's through the coffee. Then it had red X's through the shirts, and it had circled, just simply preach the gospel. Isn't that all we're supposed to do, is just preach the gospel? And that's exactly what it's saying in verse 8. The word of faith, which we preach, that's all. I'm just supposed to present Jesus Christ to you. If you are saved, then I want you to go deeper in Christ. If you're not saved, I want you to know who Christ is. If you are saved, as you go deeper, I want you to go out and do something with it. 
It's my job to equip you to do that, to present that preaching to you. Because look at verse 8. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Let's take that and go now to verse 9, mouth and heart. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's the heart and it's the mouth. Now, what's it mean to confess? We use this word a lot, confess. I confess Christ. Confess means to agree with. So if you say you confess Christ, that means you are agreeing with Jesus. Everything he says. So when he said, I'm the only way to get to heaven, if you confess Christ, you are agreeing that. So if I run into someone who says they are a Christian, but believes there's many ways to get to heaven other than Jesus, they are not confessing Christ. So you confess that Christ, you agree with him. So that's the first one, you confess with your mouth. Next one, believe in your heart. That word believe means to be persuaded of. It means to trust. It does not mean to just acknowledge. See, you run into people that believe in God. They acknowledge the existence of God. They're not believing in him. There's many famous leaders and rulers and political people in the world today that I believe in. I acknowledge they exist, but I do not trust them. So what happens when people say, I believe in God? Well, wait a second. If you are persuaded, if you are trusting in that, that's going to change how you are. Because look at verse 10. Your heart, your heart is the inner man, believes unto righteousness, and your mouth, the outer man, is made unto salvation. So if you truly confess Christ, if you truly believe in God, your inner man heart will be changed. And which will then affect, verse 10, your outer man, the mouth. Why is it... That we see people who claim to be Christians, but their outer man looks no different than the rest of the world. Why? If we truly believe, verse 4, that Christ is the end of it all, why does that not change how we live and act and work and all we do and say? I am not saying this to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to kick you while you're down. I am not. I'm not that type of pastor that motivates you by making you feel bad. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for Christ. I am really asking us, and I'm asking myself, if I really believe Christ is the end of everything, and if I have made confession with my mouth, and I believe in my heart, so that my inner man has been saved and changed through grace, why is my outer man look so much like the world? Why is my outer man acting like the world, living like the world, being like the world? Because if I believe verse 4, should I not get up every day and say, Lord, please let me just serve you today and minister for you. Please, Lord, whatever I can do for you today, I want to do. No matter how crazy that is, no matter how radical that is, I just want to do it. Bring one person, one person into my life that I can just hopefully share the Lord with. And then when he does, take it. Because it matters so much. And it's really been hitting me lately. You've heard me make this point so often. We go into Walmart, we go into McDonald's, we go across our streets, and and we see people. And if that person dies, are they going to heaven or hell? I mean, really, are they going to heaven or hell? Does that not move us? Because if my inner man has been changed by what Christ did, my outer man should be moved by that. 
But so often we preach a morality of Christianity, of let's change the outer man and hopefully the inner man will follow. Quit cussing, quit looking at pornography, quit yelling at your spouse, quit doing this. Change the outer man and then you'll see the inner man be different. That has not worked. It has never worked. When the inner man comes to know who Christ is, the outer man changes. Do we want that? Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. See, there's our point, verse 12. God is rich in mercy and grace and love to you if you just call upon him. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on how much you read or how much you pray. It's based on Jesus. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Man, if you want to be righteous... If you want to be made right, it's just faith. Draw near to God and he draws near to you. And as he does that, it changes us. It changes us. That's why I wanted to finish with communion. Because as we get ready to partake of this, and the guys that are helping with communion, if you want to come forward here. You know, here at Harvest, real quick, 